Welcome to today's edition of Daytime Dialogues. It's my pleasure to welcome Leslie Ginsberg-Klein to this conversation today. Leslie is the academic dean of the Women's Institute of, of Torah Seminary and College, an Orthodox Jewish college for women. She's also a great scholar, and most importantly, she is a former Chicagoan, the daughter of two very, very beloved members of our community, uh, Coleman and Elise Ginsberg, who have done so much in our community to advance Jewish education, Jewish life, and really our pillars of the community. And so, Leslie, it's a pleasure to have you today, despite some initial problems with technology. Thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. So I, I want to jump right into it. The reason I wanted to have a conversation with you is about all of the research you've done regarding women's education, and particularly uh, the research you've done in the Beis Yaakov movement, which I find. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's just jump into it in a simple question. Beis Yaakov, when it was started, they were revolutionary. They were countercultural. Um, and somehow they've become the the image of something that's so very staid and proper. How did all that happen? Well, I don't think Basiaco was the only movement that started revolutionary and then became establishment. I mean, I think that's oftentimes how things happen in history. You have a new trend, a new group comes up. They, at the time, are very radical but over time, they become the establishment. Um, Beis Yaakov is an example of this. Probably even the better example from the same time period is Agudas Yisrael. So Agudas Yisrael was a very was at the time which a very radical movement within Poland. They were the people who started Agudas Yisrael were followers of Rav Hirsch, and they were actually looking to kind of bring in this Hirschian approach to modernity into Poland, and that was extremely controversial at the time. And um, at a certain point in Beis Yaakov's history, Beis Yaakov got connected to Agudas Yisrael. And, Agud and that was one of their many uh, radical projects at the time, including things they were doing in boys' education. And Dafyomi was, was very controversial at the time, at, at its inception. And all of these things have become kind of institutions. So yeah, what you're saying is very true about Beis Yaakov, but I even think it's hard to imagine going to the most recent Siam Hashas, that Dafyomi was extremely controversial at the time. I mean, yeah. op opponents of Dafyomi said that it was a ploy for Aguda to get more followers. But there were all different kinds of, of criticisms. I mean, besides the, the, you know, the question of it dumbed down Gemara learning, that was, that was one criticism at the time, but the other one was, was very political. That it was because there were a lot of political opponents and um, politics at the time. You know, when you think about today and all the politics in, in the community, like, that existed 100 years ago as well. Politics in Poland pre-war were uh, were cut, cutthroat. Yes. Uh, yeah. Not to you know minimize in all of the images that people have of Europe that came straight out of Hollywood and Fiddler on the Roof are not what was going on. In fact... When Sarah Schneer started up Beis Yaakov, what was the reason she started up the Beis Yaakov movement or the Beis Yaakov? So she, so she, so she grew up in Krakow, and there's actually a lot of research done. There's a historian Rachel Manikin who's done research on the numbers of Orthodox women who were converting to Catholicism in Krakow that were in her time period and her when her contemporaries, there were just these 
really alarming numbers and people in the community took notice of these of these women running away to convents and for the most part they're not converting to catholicism they're not running to these convents because they have some epiphany about religion it's an escape it was their only way out um when you start having compulsory education laws where kids had to go to school and um and that meant at the time state schools so you have a lot of of Jewish girls, of girls from Orthodox families, what would become called Orthodox families, um, going to these secular or sometimes even religious state schools. And um, there actually were higher numbers of girls going to these schools than boys for myriad reasons. One, because the cheder system was somewhat established. So, um, so there were uh, plenty of families where the boys are in traditional haters and the girls are going to schools. And the community thought that that was great. First, because they wanted girls. The, the community was very poor. So you needed women to be to have marketable skills. And, you know, great. Have women be the ones to learn Polish and languages and all these different secular skills. And, and use them for to help the support of the family. And also there were quotas, there were expectations of how many numbers of Jewish kids were going to be in these schools. And there were, in many areas, they used girls to fill that quota because better put girls in the schools than pull the boys out of cheder. But the reality that happens is you have these girls who have no formal Jewish education. Their only Jewish education is experiential in the home. And now they're in school and they're learning you know, they're learning science, they're learning math and philosophy and being exposed to a lot of different ideas that are not consonant with traditional Judaism. And they start to, there starts to be a great disparity between their knowledge of secular subjects and their knowledge of Jewish subjects. And that leads to a real gap. They start viewing Judaism as archaic, as old fashioned, as, you know, super crazy superstition. They don't have the tools or the background to maintain their Jewish observance once they're exposed to all of these forces from the all these secular ideologies. And that's only going to be compounded if they're going to work in, let's say, a factory. When And think about just the time period. You're talking about the time of socialism and communism. Every ism under the book is, is rising up now. So give us, give us some years that we're talking about. So we're talking about... We're talking about like the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Already in 1903, there's a, a conference of rabbis in Krakow, and one of the delegates says, "So we we have we have um, abandoned girls' education too long. We have failed them. We need to start schools." And he talks about a lot of different issues. This was not a new issue. There were articles about this in the press all the time. What are we doing about the fact that Jewish girls know nothing about Judaism and they don't want to be religious. They don't want to, they're converting in high numbers. Like this was a known issue. And he raises this issue that, and he brings up on top of all of the other issues. He also mentions how there was a disproportionate number of Jewish women in prostitution and in white slavery. And, and that, that um, the lack of education and the lack of environment was contributing to that. And that, and he kind of mentions that in, in kind of euphemistic, language that that's another issue and um it was actually when when um they fundraised for basic in poland in america they one of the points that they fundraised on was that that 
Basiakov prevented girls and women from falling into white slavery. So how did Sarah Schneer get into this? Like, who was she to, to jump in and go swim against the tide, against a lot of the rabbinic positions? It wasn't right. until she had two important endorsements. Her endorsements came, which endorsements? Well, the last being the Chofetz Chaim before that, the Rebbe who came up, who, who also endorsed. So just to note, just the, the Chofetz Chaim's endorsement was in 1933. She started the schools in 1917. I mean, that was 16. way, way later, <laughs> way so the first, later. So the first 16 she, years. Well, first of all, right. so she, 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 was an ab, she was an absolute nobody, an absolute nobody. She was a nobody. She was poor. She was from a, a family of Belzer Hasidim. She was poor. She was uneducated. She anything. Her education was all. She went to state school until thirteen. She had no formal Jewish education. Everything she did was self-taught. Um, but she had this like religious fire within her. Like you know, we have her diary and we have her memoir. And from a young age, she was very bothered by how disconnected from religion her contemporaries were and she talks about wishing that she could do something about it i wish i could just that could be my she wanted that to be her mission in life to save her sisters but she didn't she didn't know how to do that because she was poor she was a woman she by that point what well she was an old she was what we would call an older single and then she was married for about three years and got divorced so she was divorced. She was a, a woman who kind of had everything against her. She had no protexia. She didn't have money. She didn't have any of those things that sometimes make going into leadership a little bit easier. Um, but she, during World War One, she tells this story that during World War One, her family's in Vienna because Krakow was not safe. And she ends up in the shul of a rabbi, Osha David Flesh, who was a follower of Rev Hirsch. And she's exposed to new orthodoxy and it opens her mind. And she, she, she sees now this path of how to reconcile modernity and from kites. And she thinks to herself, if only, you know, if only the women and girls in Krakow could hear what I'm hearing, then they would, they would feel connected to Judaism. They, they would still want to you know, be from. And and on one Shabbos, this rabbi gave a speech about being a hero, being a heroine. He actually talked about the heroines of Hanukkah and the importance for all the women in the audience to be heroines. And this to her was, was you know, mind-blowing because it's something that wouldn't have happened in a shul in Poland. You wouldn't have had the rabbi not just talking about women from the pulpit, but addressing women from the pulpit. That didn't happen. So she feels this inspiration. And when she goes back to Krakow in 1915, she is determined she is going to see her dream come true of, of working on behalf of working for women and girls. And her original idea is actually not to start a school. Her original idea is to start a youth movement, kind of like, you know, there's socialist youth, communist youth, she was going to start a youth movement for girls and she, for teenage girls. And she tries that and she fails because they're not interested. And they look at her like she's she's crazy. So after a, a number of failed attempts, she decides she needs to start younger. And she starts with a school, an afternoon school. And the vast majority of Basiakov schools in Poland were afternoon schools, meaning they went to public school and then they went to Basiakov. So she starts an afternoon school for 
a bunch of local girls who she knew through her business. She, she was a streamstress. She had a dress studio and she knew these girls and she, she recruits them and she starts small. And then what, what wins her ultimately approval is her success. She, she's successful. And so the organized community starts to take notice and be like, Hey, this woman is doing something. It's working. Let's give her, let's give her funding. Let's give her backing. When did the Belzarebi get involved in this? So the bell, so before she started the first school, so that was in 1917. So before she started the first school, she writes to her brother, who was um, a Ben Bias in the Belzarebi's house, who was very closely connected to the Belzarebi. And he, she says to him, I want to start the school. And the brother is like, what are you getting involved in politics for? You know, th- this is such a hot button issue. You're going to get involved in this. You're going to get yourself destroyed. And then she, but she pushes. And when he realizes that she's doing this, no matter what, she's starting this school. He's like, okay, let's go to the Belzarebi and, and see if, if he'll approve it. And they go to the Belzarebi, they give a kvitzel, which says um, there, she has, you know, she's the only account of this story. So what she says, the language was, my sister, the brother gives a kvitzel, a little note to the Rebbe. My sister wants to lead Jewish girls in the Jewish way. And the Belzarebi says, bracha v'hatzlacha. Wonderful. And she takes, and she had that, you know, that two-word approval, but a two-word that was quite potent in a highly Hasidic society. And the Belzarebi was a very influential figure. Um, whether the Belzarebi actually knew she was starting to intended to start a school or not is something that is a matter of discussion amongst historians because um, he didn't because he did not allow Belzer girls to attend the school. So it's interesting because when you look at the Chofetz Chaim and he starts talking about Torah Shabal Peh and, right. and was who gave her the idea that she could teach more than. I guess the equivalent of Tzenorena of, but really get into Tanakh studies with Torah Shabal Pen, pieces like that. So first of all, the Chavaz Chaim wrote two statements. So he wrote a Haskama to Beis Yaakov, that's in 1933. He also, there's a footnote, I wouldn't even say it's a statement, there's there's a, there's a note that he writes in Likutei Halacha, um, Likutei Halacha Tzota, about on the statement in the Gemara that any man who teaches his daughter Oh. Um, Talmud, Torah, sorry, teaches his daughter Torah. It's it's as if he's teaching her Tiflut, immorality. Um, and the Rambam does consider this as a halacha. And he he does say there that in our days, it's necessary to teach girls more than they've been taught and they should be taught Torah Shabbat. Um, that, that statement, um, again, historians disagree about when it was written, whether it was somewhere between 19... 11 and 1923, no one's 100% sure when that, I mean, they're not say that, people argue about when that statement was written, um, but that wasn't written about Beis Yaakov per se. It had, that was, that was just a, yeah, that was probably a general statement. Um, you know, the Chavaz Chaim was very involved in Agoda, and at a certain point, Agoda took over the Beis Yaakov movement. And because Agoda was so controversial, you know, the Belzarebi became an active opponent to Beis Yaakov after it became an Agoda project because he was an opponent of Agoda. And, um, you know, there's a lot of politics there. Rachel Manikin, who I mentioned 
writes about this. So does Naomi Seidman. She has an excellent biography of Sarah Schneer that just came out about a year or so ago. So they both really go into the the politics of interwar Europe. Um, but but, oh, the curriculum. Now, the curriculum, you asked about the curriculum. The curriculum was straight Rav Hirsch, Torah and Rav Hirsch, they, Chorev, 19 letters. It was a very, very Hirschian curriculum. It was, the, the curriculum was designed, I mean, okay, let's start with this. Sarah when she started, she's starting with little girls. She's starting with the mo most basic things. As the school expands and when it becomes an Aguda project, so Aguda brings in these PhDs in education to design the curriculum. And it was a strain, some of the names, um, Dr. Leo Deutschlander, Dr. Judith Rosenbaum Grunfeld. So they're, you know, they're creating curriculum. It's a reverse, it's a very, very reverse curriculum. Yes, you know, I don't, I'm sure you don't know this. Um, 20 some years ago, I had a teacher at Ida Crown who was coming to Ida Crown, and I asked if he would teach girls a Gemara class. And he was coming from Itri. And he said, I have to ask my Rosh Hashim. I said, that's fair. And he asked from Shlomo Fisher whether or not he could teach girls Gemara. And from Shlomo Fisher, and I have the copy of the of the Chuba wrote, ever since the Chofetz Chaim permitted Torah Shabbat, there's no reason not, but you have to teach them with Rishonim and Achronim and don't, not to make it just just little things along the way. So the statements that the Chofetz Chaim made about whether it's the Torah Shabbat Pen general or the Beis Yaakov movement, in some ways, actually continue to reverberate in our generation. But he restricted Torah Shabbat Pen. I know. Meaning but, his real permission was on Torah Shabbat But when you're dealing with already Meforshim on, on Chumash, you're already dealing with Torah Shabbat Pen. I mean, yeah, right, it's all Torah Shabbat Pen. I once asked Necham Leibovitz many, many years ago um, about whether or not she'd learned Gemara, because she was always quote, quoting Gemara. She said, "Lo, lama, lo lomdim." But I learned, I learned Tanakh, and to learn Tanakh, she knew a velvet. She knew right everything along the way. So when Beis Yaakov starts out, it's a um, an afternoon school, right? But the difference is Talmud as a subject, and that's um, that is where the difference is. When it starts out as a, a afternoon school, when does it become the seminaries that we know today, the the day schools that we know today? So. Closer to World War II, when there, it was much more established. So they started having in large cities day schools, like ones where they could get government approval. Like that—that that was the direction that Aguda wanted to take both girls and boys' education. And actually, one could argue, um, you know, they were thrown to Hiram for suggesting this for boys. That we have a school that teaches secular, a Jewish school that teaches secular studies to boys. Like th that idea was so was even probably more revolutionary and controversial than, than the idea of having a girls' school that taught both. Um, but that was the direction they were going in both boys and girls' education, was to get these schools approved by the government as equivalent to the state schools. I mean, what we would consider today's day schools. You teach with the state mandates, plus you have Jewish studies, so that they wouldn't have to be in the secular schools at all. That, that was the goal. They had you know, achieved that with Beis Yaakov in the big city. Um, but, you know, some of these small towns, you know, there's one, there was one teacher for a schoolroom of all ages. The, the resources weren't there, but that definitely was the direction they were going. Of course, that gets cut, that gets cut off 
terribly by the Holocaust. When the when the seminary they had already, the seminary was started on some level, the seminary was started, um, Darshanir started herself where she just had older girls who were interested literally living with her and teaching with her. And she trained them. She trained them. The seminary becomes in Eastern Europe, the crown jewel of the Basiakov movement. That's the, if you've ever seen pictures of the building on Stanislaw 10, that was the seminary building. The seminary attracted girls, the seminary in Krakow attracted girls from across Eastern Europe. Um, it was a two-year program. They were living in a dorm away from home, which was kind of revolutionary at the time. You know, girls didn't leave home before they got married. And then in order to attend the seminary, they had to commit uh, this is like a forerunner of Teach for America. They had to commit to two years teaching in a town away from their family, like not their hometown. That was, a, that was a requirement of admissions. They had to teach for two years. So that meant that for two years, they were devoting themselves 100% to the movement. You're trained for two years, you're taught for two years. And they wanted it to be in a town, not your hometown, because they didn't want any split obligations. They, they didn't want, you know, there to be familiar obligations. You had to be able to devote yourself 100% to your students. Now, was this plan, when you say they, was this Sarah, Sarah Schneer who was doing this, or this already is the broader Aguda um, advisory? Um, when you get to that point, that's hard. That's hard to know exactly. She was still very involved in the seminary. She was very involved. She was very involved in the student, you know, with her students and with them, you know, visit, traveling, visiting schools, checking in on people. Um, but it, it is hard to know, like, whose idea was the two-year? You'd have to, like, look into, like, meeting minutes. To, I don't know. I don't know whose idea that was. Um, I will say that without a doubt, Sarah Schneer's goal of the Basiakov movement was that girls become leaders, that they be leaders and and she viewed educators as leaders, you know, leader educators for the next generation. That was 100% the goal. In her final will to her students, that is the message. Be leaders. She also saw learning Torah as, uh, you know who also writes about this? Another former Chicagoan, um, Dr. Shani Beckhoffer, right? Did a lot of analysis about, about, um, this point in Sarishner's goal, but she Sarishner believed that learning was a way of connecting to Yiddishkeit and connecting to Hashem and, and like that women's learning and women's spirituality had inherent value. And, and, if she and were, that was the goal of Basiakov. And if she were to come back today and look at Basiakov's of today, is there any indication of what she would have thought? It's so hard to say. You know, but, Inter, interwar Europe and 21st century America are such different settings. So you asked me about America. So when Basiago started in America, it started from the start as a day school. By that time, by the 1940s, the Orthodox community had already, was the leadership had already given up on supplementary schooling and was moving towards day schools. So when they, the first schools started, they started as day schools. Um, Rebetzin Vichna Kaplan, who started the first Basiakov Seminary in high school in America. Okay, she starts for a few years. She's teaching classes at night around her dining room table. But fairly quickly, you know, within a few years, she has a, you know, a, a full day school. And that that was the model in America. So, you know, what would Sarah Schneer say? So one of her things was no Jewish girl left behind. 
you know, every Jewish girl is entitled to Jewish education. So, you know, I think she'd be blown away by the numbers, by the numbers of schools, by the numbers of students. Um, when you hear about schools that don't accept girls, when you hear about cities where there are girls that have nowhere to go to school, because basically every Basiakov school has said, you're not good enough. I cannot think of anything more antithetical to what she believed in. I really, I can't think of, of anything more antithetical to her beliefs. You want to start parsing policies in schools? You know, you can do that. It's a fun exercise. It's really ahistorical because you can't take things out of its context. You know, what would she say about the Tznius rules today? I don't know. It's a different, it's a very different world in that you know, and the way things are in schools today is a is is quite a progression, and and that's what my book is that I'm writing is about is is the progression of Beisiakov in America. You know, from the start and from its ties to interwar Europe, but from its start in the 40s. And a big difference between Beisiakov in America and Beisiakov in Europe is Beisiakov in Europe was a cohesive body. It was a movement. It really was a social movement. It had it had a central office and publications that that popularized ideology and and it had um institutes and and youth groups and you know her original vision of a youth movement that ended up happening years later that never happened in america and part and parcel is because it's anti the american ethos of individuality there isn't that same level of centrality in america that there is in europe um but there's no basiakov movement there's there's no overarching so that's why America, if you wanted to start a Basiakov tomorrow, go ahead, do it. No one can stop you. Only in Chicago, we would have a Basiakov. There was a boys school for many years. That's correct. That's <laughs> right. I remember that. <laughs> there, is no, there was no governing body of Basiakov. And, so you and there is no. There right. is a wide range of what people decide. What it means. Right. In Basiakov is a, as a future one time, I'll tell you one other thing that I think is a difference that she would object to, because I, I feel like that's really what you're asking, is where would she say that that it's different than her vision, was um, the emphasis on, on becoming teachers. That early on in base in Beisiakov in Europe, and definitely early on in Beisiakov in America, there was a real push that, that if you have the ability to teach, you should become a teacher. There's no higher or holier calling than education. And I feel like what I see today more is in encouraging girls to go into fields that are lucrative. And that's pushed more than I don't think there's a push anymore to become teachers. And I believe that our schools are suffering for it. Because yeah. girls who are the oh, young girls, women who have the talent and the ability and drive to be teachers are being directed into other fields now going into other fields. So and that's a crisis in our community that our community needs to deal with. This is a new crisis also in terms of teachers because part of the teacher's shortage within especially the Haredi world are the girls coming back from seminary are not necessarily going into teaching. They're going into professions that are more lucrative, as you mentioned. You, you also mentioned there's a book. Tell us about the book a little bit. Oh, my book? <laughs> so my book is based in part on my dissertation, um, but my dissertation ended in the mid-80s and my book extends into the 21st century about the... History and the Development of Beisiakov in America, and specifically about how Beisiakov became a place, became the a cultural center for girls within Orthodox Judaism, which one, could, one you could argue it was in Europe as well, that there is this culture of 
Basiakov that is very integral to the experiences of girls and women in the yeshivish community. And there is an identity of being a Beis Yaakov girl and what that means. And our time is up. Otherwise, I would ask many, many more questions. <laughs> when will the book be available? I don't know. Academic <laughs> publishing is slow. I, I'm, I, I would say best case, like two years. Okay. Well, look, That's we'll hoping. And I, I want <laughs> Certainly, to I'm happy to come back when it comes out. I'll, you'll come back before because I have a lot more questions, Leslie. I really appreciate this. This half hour has gone by very, very quickly. In fact, I think more than a half hour has gone by. But I want to thank you. I want to wish you great hatzlacha and finishing off that book. But also your scholarship enlightens and enriches people's lives. And so thank you so very much for all that you do. You're welcome. Thank you. For continuing this conversation. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. You too.